everyone, I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history and today we are going to be talking about the case of Joji Abara. I watched a documentary on Netflix last year called Missing the Lucy Blackman Case and the disgusting perpetrator at the center of this case was a man named Joji Abara. And the documentary was really well done. However, there was one thing I came away thinking, which was that the full extent of the disgusting crimes committed by this purely evil man were not emphasized. I just felt like the documentary kind of glossed over how evil Joji Abara was because Joji is pure evil. He was a ridiculously wealthy Japanese playboy, as some would call him. Possibly the richest person I've ever covered as well. Like I'm talking mega, multi-millionaire. And with all of that money, he got a lot of power and he thought he could do whatever he wanted. And he had some very disturbing sexual fetishes. And he was a disgusting sexual predator And his victim count is thought to be as high as 400. Also the highest number of victims I've ever covered. And Joji's crimes eventually came to light when a young British woman named Lucy Blackman, who is the subject of the Netflix documentary, went missing in Japan. And the story became huge in the UK. And the case of Lucy Blackman is just so tragic. But sadly, it is so much more than just Lucy because there are so many more victims. So there is a lot going on in today's case. So let's dive in. Joji Abara was born on the 10th of August 1952, making him a Leo. And he grew up in the city of Osaka, Japan. Now, Joji Abara was not actually born Joji Abara. He was actually born Kim Sung Jung. He did legally change his name down the line, but I'm just going to call him Joji, otherwise, it's going to get so confusing. And Joji was born to parents of Korean descent who had immigrated to Japan after the Second World War. Now, Joji's parents had done very well for themselves. That's an understatement. By the time Joji was born, they were already mega rich. Over the years, Joji's dad ran multiple businesses. He also set up a business selling what are known as pachinko machines. And I really hope that that is how you pronounce it. And these pachinko machines are basically just vertical pinball machines. And I'd never heard of them before, but apparently they are particularly huge in Japan. However, it is believed that a lot of criminal activity and mafia activity are linked to these pachinko machines. And whilst this is not confirmed, it is strongly suspected that Joji's dad was basically in business with gangs and the Japanese mafia. So Joji's dad and his family, they were obviously mega rich, but I think a lot of the money didn't come from legal activities, let's just say. So anyway, that is how basically the family made their money. Then Joji was born and he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And I'm talking like multimillionaire already. He grew up in a huge mansion. The family at the home, they had staff. When Joji turned six years old, he was already attending the most prestigious school because of course he did. And every day when Joji returned home from school, he had three 
private tutors waiting for him to give him more education. He learned how to speak multiple languages fluently. He learned how to play the violin. He was made to study music all day on Saturdays. He also had more private education on Sundays. That's a lot for a child. Every single waking moment of Joji's childhood, he was learning how to do something, play an instrument, learn a language. And by the time Joji turned 15, he started attending the most elite school in the whole of Japan, the Yokohama Prep School, which is just south of Tokyo. And obviously his family, he grew up in Osaka. He couldn't exactly travel from Osaka to Tokyo every single day there and back. So his dad decided, I'm going to buy my son a mansion in Tokyo so he can live there and attend this school. And I'm not joking, that is literally what his dad did. His dad bought him a mansion just outside of Tokyo and Joji lived there on his own with staff. However, it wasn't great for Joji. I mean, he must have been incredibly lonely in that mansion, basically on his own. But just two years later, when Joji was 17, his dad died suddenly. And his dad was only 44 years old when he died. Now, the exact cause of death is actually unknown. Very, very suspicious. And it is suspected that because Joji's dad was involved with the mafia, it is suspected that he was possibly murdered by the Japanese mafia. However, what we do know is following his dad's death, Joji inherited pretty much all of his father's assets. And at the age of 17, Joji literally overnight became a multimillionaire. His wealth at this point at the age of 17 was approximately 20 million US dollars. I know, pick your jaw up off the ground, 20 million dollars. I wasn't joking when I said that this family was wealthy. Following this, Joji then went to the prestigious Keio University where he earned degrees in law and political science. However, Joji was still incredibly unhappy. And now we get to 1973. Joji is now 21 years old. And it was at this point in his life where Joji was incredibly conscious of the way he looked. One of the main things that he was really self-conscious about was his height. Joji was five foot five. And in his mind, that was too short. He didn't want to be that height. He wanted to be taller. He wanted to be more muscular. And at some point in university, Joji actually started taking growth hormones, hoping that it would increase his height, but they had no effect whatsoever. So instead, Joji resorted to wearing platforms in his shoes to make him appear taller. On top of this, Joji would also sweat profusely. He was constantly dabbing and mopping his face because he used to sweat so much. Joji also underwent plastic surgery on his eyes to make them appear wider. And this was in an effort in Joji's mind to help him appear more attractive. It was also around this time where Joji changed his name from his Korean name to a more Japanese Japanese name, which is Joji Abara, because he wanted his name to sound more Japanese and he wanted to fit in. But despite changing his name, having surgery, taking hormones, changing his height with the platform shoes, Joji still remained incredibly self-conscious. He actually refused to have his photo taken. I mean, seriously, there is literally only three grainy photos of Joji online. And most of the time, Joji liked to wear sunglasses because he was self-conscious and he didn't want to draw attention to himself, which honestly, really does break my heart. I know Joji is a vile, evil person, but I hate it 
when people are so self-conscious. I know I've dealt with that, um, still deal with that. So now Joji has finished university, but Joji doesn't have a clue what to do with his life. So following his graduation, Joji spent a few years traveling. He spent some time in Stockholm, Sweden, before traveling to the US, where he claimed, and I really want to stress this, he claimed to become pretty good friends with... <laughs> I'm sorry, I just find this funny because it's so obviously not true. He claimed that he was good friends with Carlos Santana. It's like, yeah, no, no, I don't believe that. So following his travels, Joji returns back to Japan. He is now in his mid-twenties and he still doesn't know what to do with his life, but he decides to do nothing. Joji was quite happy with the fact that he was a multimillionaire and he just wanted to become a multimillionaire playboy. Joji pretty much just takes takes all of his money and invests it in various different things. He invests a lot in property and he basically just lives off his investments. And Japan's economy at this point, this is the late 70s going into the 80s, it was booming. Japan was quickly becoming the second largest economy in the world. And at this point, at the late 70s going into the 80s, Japan was actually on track to become the largest economy in the world. And this is when a lot of people in Japan made a hell of a lot of money. When I was doing my research, and please correct me if I'm wrong. It kind of seemed like The Wolf of Wall Street. If you've seen that movie, you know how they live with their yachts and their parties and their drugs and their alcohol. That is basically what was happening in Japan. There were so many businessmen that were getting ridiculously rich from the economy booming and there was wild parties being thrown, drugs, alcohol, crime, drinking cocktails that were sprinkled with real gold. It's like, what's the point? Like literally, what is the point? You're throwing your money away, don't get it. And Joji saw this lifestyle and he wanted to be a part of it. So he started spending money wildly. But when you have $20 million in your pocket, you can. He would visit nightclubs pretty much every single night and he would blow so much money on alcohol. He was probably buying all of that gold real gold sprinkled cocktails. He bought himself so many expensive cars, like cars were his thing. He bought himself an Aston Martin, a Maserati, a Maserati, Maserati? I don't know much about cars, I'm sorry. A Rolls Royce, probably a Porsche. I'm not sure if he did buy himself a Porsche, but pretty much every single luxury car out there, he had one of them. Joji also started using his money to attract women. Whenever he was at these nightclubs, he would always flash his cash. He would was always buying women drinks. Joji was continuing to invest his money heavily in property because that is where it was booming and his wealth grew to not $20 million anymore. No, his peak wealth was $45 million. It's crazy, isn't it? It's just so crazy. However, there was one thing that money couldn't buy Joji and that was friends. He had always lived quite a lonely life from when he was a young child. He was still living in that mansion just outside of Tokyo that his dad had bought him. He stayed at home all day. He read he went out and then obviously on the night he went out to nightclubs, he rarely even saw his family. However, Joji did have a companion that he was very close to, a dog, a 
Shetland sheepdog called Irene. And he actually had a full-size statue of Irene outside of his mansion, which honestly, I think this is the only thing that I agree with Joji on. I feel like I need to get a statue of Daisy. <laughs> but if it was life-size, it would literally only be this big. <laughs> I feel like I need a giant statue of Daisy in my garden. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised though, Joji being a multimillionaire, I wouldn't be surprised if the statue was like gold. And this is how things went on for years, years and years. He was becoming more and more isolated, spending all of his time in the house, in his mansion. And now we get to the 1990s. And this is when Japan's economy bubble burst. The economy fell into a complete state of disarray. Asset prices fell massively. The whole country went into a recession and Joji Abara lost a fortune. He lost tens of millions. And it wasn't long until Joji fell into debt, which is just crazy that someone with that much money can actually get into debt. And I read that at one point, his mom gave him the equivalent of $33 million in cash so that Joji could pay off someone he was in debt to. And when I read that, I thought, well, first of all, how the hell does anyone have $33 million worth of cash just readily available to give to somebody? But uh, it's just crazy, isn't it? Different world. But then I thought, Joji owes someone, someone, not like a bank, not a business, not a loan, someone. He owes someone $33 million. That somebody sounds like possibly a criminal. So now we get onto the next stage of Joji's life. Because now the country was in recession, Joji was pretty much penniless. He still needed to live his lavish lifestyle though. So he turned to a life of crime. But he started to make some dodgy dealings with the wrong people and his real estate business actually became a front for money laundering for the Japanese mafia. So he was making a little bit of money doing that, but he wasn't making anywhere near as much money as he used to. And he tried to cling on to this lifestyle that he had built for himself, but he just didn't have enough money to. He still had his mansion that his dad bought him and he kept it, but it fell into complete disarray because I can imagine that the upkeep on a mansion is ridiculously expensive and Joji just didn't have that money. So things started to fall apart. He kept all of his luxury cars, but all of them had flat tires. None of them actually could be driven. He just wanted them there to look at. But Joji getting involved with the Japanese mafia was not his worst crime because now we need to talk about Joji, the sexual predator. Because we haven't really talked about this yet, but Joji was a disgusting, horrible womanizer. He believed that women were below him. All they were good for was to look pretty and have sex with him. And I haven't mentioned this so far because I didn't quite know how to fit it in because we now need to go back in time a little bit and talk about Joji's sexual deviant behavior and where it started and everything. So it actually started in his late teens. And Joji had always hated women. Dating all the way back to the 70s, Joji started to keep a diary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another diary case. He started to keep a diary and he wrote in his diary how much he hated women. He would say things like, women are only good for sex. I will lie on women and I will seek revenge. And then when Joji got into his 20s, he started writing in his journal, quote, I cannot do conscious women. And it was around this time that he started to develop a very disturbing fantasy. And that was to have sex with women who were either unconscious or asleep. And when I read that, I was like, 
um, okay, what the actual hell? Because before this case, I didn't actually know that this was a thing. And apparently this is actually a fetish. I don't know how common this fetish is. I didn't do too much research on this because honestly, it kind of creeped me out and disturbed me. But what is even more disturbing is that there are clubs in Tokyo that specialize in this fetish where you can pay sex workers to pretend to be asleep or they actually are unconscious and then you can have sex with them. Listen, I don't like to talk negatively about fetishes or anything like that. Everyone has different things that they like and as long as you are doing it consensually, you do you, you do whatever you want. But this feels different to me. It definitely makes me feel very uncomfortable because I just started to think, but how can you give consent if you're unconscious? It's like you can give consent prior to being unconscious, but then you're unconscious. What about if something is done to you that you didn't give consent to? There is no way that you can say no. You have no idea what is actually happening to you. I don't know. It just makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I don't mean to offend anybody. I don't. You'll have to let me know your thoughts on that fetish. Let me know in the comments. But anyway, moving on, Joji, this was his fetish. But Joji was becoming desperate on how he could bring his fetish to life, to reality. And this would soon lead to Joji's first of many sex crimes. So remember when Joji was really rich, he would go out to clubs every single night and blow through loads of money. And he would try and lure women with money, buy them gifts, etc. So one evening, he brought one woman back to his home who he had wooed in the club, you know, buying her gifts, drinks. And this woman thought that she was having a really good time with Joji. And we actually don't know the identity of this woman, which is why I'm not saying her name or anything. That's the sad thing about this case. We actually don't know the identities of so many of his victims. But anyway, this woman thought that she was having a really good time. She was back at Joji's house. And then Joji soon slipped something into her drink and she fell unconscious. And given what his fetish is, we all know what is about to happen. And I'm just going to give a warning now. We are going to be talking about sexual assault. And pretty much for the rest, we are going to be talking about sexual assault on and off. So once this woman was unconscious, Joji raped her. The following morning, the woman woke up and she was so disoriented. She didn't know where she was. She was shaky. She was all over the place. I mean, she'd just been drugged. And she turned to Joji because she hadn't got a clue what had happened. He gave her some BS story that she had passed out because she had drank too much alcohol. And the woman left Joji's home in a complete panic. And she had this sinking feeling in her stomach that she knew something had happened to her, something like a sexual assault. She didn't quite know what, but she just had that feeling that something wasn't right, but she never went to the police. And Joji got away with it. And the fact that he got away with this first one gave him the confidence to do this over and over again. And now we get to the point in the case where Joji becomes one of the most prolific sexual criminals I have ever come across. And it would always be the same routine, like literally the same routine. He would go out to a club, he would splash the cash, get the attention of women. He would buy them drinks and gifts. He would then take them back to his mansion again, flashing his cash. He would slip something into their drink. They would become unconscious and then he would sexually assault them. Even though the majority of the women, they didn't even know what had happened to them. 
time, the women that did suspect that they had been assaulted, they were either too scared to go to the police or some of them actually did go to the police, but they were never believed. So Joji kept getting away with sexually assaulting and raping women for years. And I am talking years, years and years. This sexual assault started when he was in his late teens, early 20s. We don't actually know exactly when it started, but it definitely started in his early 20s. That is the latest that he started. So he was sexually assaulting women throughout the whole of his 20s and then into his 30s. So I'm talking right now over a decade of sexually assaulting women on a regular basis. And this was during the time when he was making millions, when he took his wealth from $20 million to $45 million. The whole time he was sexually assaulting women. And I can't help but think the fact that he is so rich is what is helping him get away with all of this. He has so much money and with money comes power. He also has connections to the Japanese mafia. I'm sure he probably bragged about that as well. I don't blame these women for being so scared of him. And the victim count went into the tens, then the twenties, then the thirties, then the one hundreds. It is insane to me that he has assaulted hundreds of women and he just got away with every single one. we get back to the beginning of the 90s, which is when the economy burst in Japan. So we are now back to the story where Joji has pretty much lost all of his money. So Joji is now entering the stage of his life where he's so desperate and he turns to a life of crime. That's when his business turns into the money laundering front for the Japanese mafia. And this is when Joji, I mean, he'd been sexually assaulting women for over a decade at this point. He was bored of simply just drugging a woman and then raping them. That was not exciting enough for him anymore. He also wanted to videotape them. He wanted to film the whole sexual assault. He wanted to make his own disturbing pornography. So Joji set up his little film studio that was a sick and twisted, basically sex chamber. He attached hooks to the ceiling so he could hoist a woman's legs up in the air. He bought camera equipment. He bought a camera, tripod, professional lights, not too dissimilar to the setup that I have now, which truly just creeps me out. I have a camera, tripod, professional lights. It's so sick. He also bought monitors. I have a monitor here, which it's so sick. And from this moment on, the MO was pretty much the same. He would go out to a club. He would find a woman. He would shower her with gifts, money, drinks, blah, blah, blah. Even though he didn't have that much money anymore, he would bring the woman back to his sex chamber. Not that she knew that. He would slip something in her drink. She would become unconscious. He would bring her into his sex chamber chamber, put her on the bed. He would tie her legs up and hoist them attached to those other hooks on the ceiling. And then he would film the whole of the sexual assault. And over the next few years, Joji made hundreds of videotapes. Yes, hundreds and all of them were of different women. It is just so hard to think about hundreds of victims and we do not know their identities and it pains me. Why do we not know these women? Oh my God, it gets me so angry. And later down the line in this case, these videotapes 
were discovered. I have not seen them, obviously, but I have read descriptions of the contents of these videotapes. And he would secretly film the women from the moment they got into his home. He would almost film the date part of the assault when he would bring the woman home and the woman thought that she was having a good time. She thought that she had found this nice, charming man. So in the beginning of these films, they would always start out the same. The woman would be seen laughing and joking, a big smile on her face. She was enjoying herself. And then all of a sudden, it would cut to the sex chamber in the bedroom. The woman would be on the bed. She would be completely naked. She was always unconscious. Her eyes were closed. Her legs were hoisted and hooked to the ceiling. You would sometimes be able to see the studio lights lighting up the woman. And then all of a sudden, literally like it's a dramatic scene out of a movie, a man would appear completely naked, but wearing a Zorro mask. And obviously this is Joji Ibarra. And I don't know why he is wearing a mask. Is he trying to conceal his identity if these videotapes were ever found? I'm not sure. Maybe that's another thing that he likes. I don't know. And then Joji would walk into shots with his erect penis and he would sexually assault the woman. He would rape the woman. He would also sometimes sodomize the woman by using a cucumber or just various household instruments. And he even wrote in his journal that he sometimes used instruments that a doctor would use. So for anyone that's been for like a smear test, I'm assuming something like that. And if the victim ever started to wake up, he would take a cloth and he would place it over the victim's face and this cloth would be soaked with chloroform. So it would knock them out again. And these sexual assaults would sometimes last for 12 hours. And Joji, to keep himself going for those 12 hours, I can imagine, I'm not 100% sure, but I can imagine he was probably on some medication. He also had two monitors set up so he could see them. One monitor would always be playing porn constantly. And then on the other monitor, it would actually be a live feed of himself sexually assaulting the woman. He liked to watch himself in the monitor sexually assaulting the woman that is in front of him. So we know that Joji likes to keep a journal and a diary and I couldn't believe it but this is the fourth case in a row now that I have done where some sort of diary has come up which is just a very weird coincidence okay not planned at all but Joji starts to keep a diary of all of the sexual assaults. It's actually scary how similar Joji's diary is to Bob Bedella's diary. It's almost like Joji got inspiration from Bob Bedella which he didn't because they were kind of operating at the same time. But Joji went into meticulous detail in his diary. He also had creepy acronyms for all of his sexual assaults, just like Bob Bedella. And I have some of the acronyms here for you, which I've got to warn you, they're not nice to hear. So Joji wrote things in his diary like C-R-O-F-C-1991, woman number 63. So this stood for, C-R-O stood for chloroform, the method that he used to knock out the woman. F-C stood for fuck, the method of sexual assault. 1991 was obviously the year that the sexual assault happened. And then woman number 63 was obviously his 63rd victim. And the acronyms would always follow this, the form of drug or whatever it was to knock out the woman, to make them unconscious. Then the kind of sexual assault that he would do, the year that he did it, and then the victim number. And then he also wrote things like 1989, 12 people, 1990, nine people, which is how many people he had sexually assaulted in each year. He would also write things in his diary like sleeping pill good, 
Chloroform bad. She ended up vomiting badly. This is what I mean when I say that the diary is pretty much exactly like Bob Badella's. He is evaluating how effective the drugs he is using on his victims, which is exactly what Bob Badella did. And then after these sexual assaults were done, Joji would turn off the cameras. He would redress the woman. The woman would eventually wake up approximately 24 to 48 hours after the assault. She would be very disorientated. She wouldn't know where she was. He would blame them for drinking too much, for taking drugs. And he did use chloroform a lot to knock out his victims. And when the women would come round, they would be incredibly sick. They would literally be crawling around on the floor and they would be vomiting everywhere. Chloroform is very, very toxic. And using too much chloroform can even be fatal. And the women would eventually leave Joji's home completely scared, confused, having no idea what had actually happened to them. Most of them never went to the police, but those that did go to the police, they were never believed. So some more time passes now, and we've spoken a lot about Joji's sexual assaults and his method and what he would do, but now we need to talk about his victim type. Because initially, Joji was targeting local women at the nightclubs that he would go to. Most of the women that he was assaulting were Japanese women. And sadly, I read that at the time that Joji was assaulting women, sex crimes were not really taken too seriously in Japan, which is why when the women went to the police, they were never believed. However, eventually Joji decided that he wanted to target a new victim. He had a little bit of a thing for blonde Western women, and he decided that that was going to be his new target. He still targeted Japanese women, but he was now after foreign women. But the problem was, how was he going to find foreign women? But Joji soon solved this problem because he realized that he was able to track down foreign women, maybe even blonde women, by visiting Japanese hostess clubs. So now we need to talk about Japanese hostess clubs because I had never heard of these before this case. And as far as I'm aware, please correct me if I'm wrong, this is pretty specific to Japan, like these hostess clubs. And hostess clubs, they typically recruit young women. Most of the women that they would recruit were obviously Japanese, but they would also recruit foreign women as well. And these hostesses in these clubs were expected to provide company for the customers at the club. And the customers of these clubs were mostly kind of middle-aged men, normally very wealthy because these clubs are very expensive. And the easiest way to describe these hostess clubs is almost like a paid-for date. So these wealthy businessmen would go into the club and they would choose a hostess. And the hostess is expected to entertain the client for the whole evening. The hostess is expected to sit at the table of the client, talk to the client, pour them drinks, light their cigarettes, flirt with them a little bit, laugh at their jokes, have conversations with them, play into their fantasies, maybe have sexually suggested conversations. However, there's supposed to be no sexual activity, no touching, no kissing. None of the men are supposed to ask the hostess for their number, none of that. It's supposed to be a bit flirty. The hostess is supposed to play into the man's fantasies and all stuff like that. She's supposed to kind of play along, a little bit of role play if that is what the man wants, but no sexual activity beyond that. And hostessing is expensive. Like I said, it's normally wealthy men that go in there because typically a man will pay anywhere between $100 to $200 an hour 
to just be in the club. All drinks are included in that $100 to $200 an hour. And the hostesses can earn approximately $50 an hour from doing this job. And this is back in the 90s as well. So God knows how much they earn today. But you can get tips and bonuses. And if you work at a fancier club, you get paid even more than that. So you can make a lot of money. Some hostesses actually make tens of thousands of dollars a month. So does all of that make sense? I hope that I explained that clearly enough. However, there is one more aspect of hostessing and that is a dohan. And a dohan is essentially another date. It is another paid for date. But this time the date is usually one-on-one, just the man and the hostess, and it is outside of the club. Because hostessing, the majority of the time, happens inside a club, happens inside a safe space. But a dohan is a date in a restaurant, a walk on the beach, to the man's home. And this dohan is arranged in advance. A dohan costs even more money because obviously it's a private one-on-one date. The hostess makes even more money from going on a dohan as well. And this is seen as almost like a status thing in Japan. I don't know if it still is. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But these wealthy businessmen, they want to be seen with a young, pretty woman on their arm. They want to be seen with this woman that is seemingly enjoying herself on this date. So they will take the hostess out. They will take her to the fanciest restaurant. They will buy her gifts, jewelry, bags, shoes, anything that she wants. However, there is one downside. They are so much more dangerous. The hostess is no longer in the safety of the club. This hostess is possibly putting herself in a situation where she is in a completely private room with a stranger. And sometimes hostesses will sleep with the men on their dohan day. Now, this is not a required part of the job. This is up to the hostess to decide whether she wants to do this or not for some extra money. However, all of this, it can just be extremely dangerous for hostesses. Some men will expect sex at the end of the dohans. Hostesses can sometimes find themselves in incredibly dangerous situations. And you may be thinking, well, why do they go on dohans then? They make enough money from the club. Why don't they just stay in the safety of the club. But sadly, it is a required part of the hostessing job. Hostesses are required to meet a quota of going on so many dohans every single month. So they have no option. So that is basically what hostessing is and what a dohan is. And because hostesses would earn so much money, the industry started to attract women from different countries to go to Japan to work as a hostess because they would earn so much money. And there was definitely a demand for Western English speaking women with blonde hair. So it wasn't long until Joji started going to these hostess clubs to look for Western English speaking women with blonde hair. So Joji would now start going to hostess bars and he would spend a lot of money in these hostess bars. He would get to know the hostesses. He would invite them on dohans. So he would then take them for dates. He would take them back to his mansion or his apartment because he had multiple properties. He would drug them, the women would fall unconscious, and then he would rape the women for hours whilst filming himself. And he would continue to get away with this. It's just something that I know I've said a million times already, but I just don't know how he keeps getting away with all of this. So now we get to 1992. Jody is now 40 years old. It is crazy that he started sexually assaulting women in his late 
teens, early 20s. So he has been sexually assaulting women on a regular basis for two decades now. And even though most women were not reporting him, he still was being reported. It's just so baffling. But it was in 1992 where Joji meets a very significant victim in today's case, a woman by the name Karita Ridgway. And Joji did the exact same thing to her as he did with every single other woman that he came across. However, for Karita, the consequences would be so, so much worse. So Karita Ridgway, she she was 21 years old and she was born in Australia. She had spent her late teens working as a model. However, now in her early 20s, she decided that she wanted to get into the acting industry, but she needed money. So Karita and her older sister, Samantha, they came up with a plan. They both decided to travel to Tokyo, Japan, get jobs as English teachers, because at that time they were very sought after and they would earn a lot of money being English teachers. And they could earn a lot of money in a short space of time. Karita could get enough money for acting classes, then she could come back to Australia. That was the plan only stay in Tokyo for a few months. However, finding work was a lot harder than they expected. So after trying to find a job for a little while with no success, Karita saw an ad in a newspaper for a hostess job. She'd heard that it was not sex work, it wasn't too difficult, and you could earn a lot of money by doing it. So she thought, what's the harm? She got the job and she started working as a hostess in Tokyo. A few months passed, and everything's going great. She's earning so much money. She's meeting a lot of people doing this as well, like the other hostesses. And then she met a particular customer and his name was Joji Abara. So Joji arrives at the hostess club that Karita is working at. He sees that she is a Western woman. She speaks English and he's like, great. And he offers to take Karita out on a dohan, which Karita accepts. She's been a hostess now for a few months and she's never had any problems. She's gone on many dohans before. She would earn a lot of money going on this dohan. Why wouldn't she say yes? So Joji and Karita go on this dohan. They head to Joji's seaside apartment and this apartment is pretty significant. This was actually the place that he took most of his victims and this is where things start to go horribly wrong because Joji went about the same routine as he always did. He slips her something in her drink and she soon blacks out. She's unconscious. He takes her to the bedroom. He undresses her. He hooks her legs up to the ceiling. And then he proceeds to rape her over and over again for hours whilst videotaping the whole thing. However, this time it's different because Karita keeps waking up. I don't know if he didn't give her as stronger drugs in the beginning as everybody else, but she keeps waking up way more than all of the other victims that he's had. So in order to deal with this, Joji had to keep using more and more chloroform to keep knocking her out. And like I said, chloroform is toxic. It's toxic to the liver. So when the assault had finally finished and Karita eventually came round, she started vomiting violently, way more violently than anybody else. She then completely passed out and Joji could not wake her up. So Joji panicked. He didn't know what to do. So he decided to put Karita in his car and drive her to the hospital and drop her off. He drove her to the hospital, took her to the reception, gave a false name for himself, told the reception that they had just been on a date and that she'd eaten seafood and gotten food poisoning. The staff rushed Karita into the emergency room because she is severely sick and they have no clue what is wrong with her because her condition keeps 
keeps getting worse and worse. They get in contact with Karita's sister, Samantha, who immediately rushes over. But when Samantha arrives at the hospital, Karita is already unconscious and she is unable to speak. Samantha phones up their parents who fly out the next day from Australia and her condition was just getting worse and worse. She was yellow with jaundice. She was having convulsions and she fell into a coma. And sadly, after the doctor's best efforts to save her, after two weeks, Karita was pronounced brain dead and she was taken off life support. And Karita Ridgway passed away just three days before her 22nd birthday. And as you can imagine, her family were absolutely devastated and they were thinking, how the hell has this happened? The hospital staff told Karita's family that this random mysterious man dropped her off at the hospital and then he did a runner. But it gets worse. It gets so much worse. Following the horrific death, all the doctors were able to tell Karita's parents was that she had most likely died of viral hepatitis, which was obviously not true. She had died of chloroform poisoning, but they didn't know that. So now Karita's family turned to this mysterious man. Who the hell was this mysterious man that dropped off their daughter to the hospital? But how were they going to track him down? But it turns out they didn't even need to track him down because Joji Obara called them himself. Joji had the nerve to call up Karita's parents. He phoned them up, he gave them his fake name, and he said that he was so sorry for their daughter's death. He was just on a date with their daughter and she had eaten some seafood and gotten food poisoning and he was so sorry, he felt so guilty. And unbelievably, Joji asked if he could meet up with Karita's parents in person. He wants to meet up with the parents of the young woman that he just murdered. And I don't know why he wanted to do this. Was there some part of him that did feel slightly guilty? Was he getting a sick and twisted thrill from this? Or was he just hoping that by playing the concerned date, he could use this as a tactic to get away with the crime? I'm thinking it's probably the latter out of all of those. So when he meets up with them, he starts off by saying how much he loves their daughter, that they've been on many dates and that he was so sorry and that he felt guilty about what had happened. He then hands Karita's parents two small boxes and inside these boxes contained a diamond ring and a gold necklace. And I'm talking a real diamond ring. He said that he had bought these gifts for Karita's birthday. I can't, I can't. He has the audacity to give Karita's parents gifts. Joji also offered to pay for Karita's funeral. Again, the audacity. Now, Karita's parents were incredibly suspicious of this strange man that is handing them gifts and offering to pay for the funeral. So they headed straight to the police to report him. They had a suspicion that he had something to do with their daughter's death. So they went to the police. They also went to the Australian embassy, but no one would listen no investigation was made. Karita's parents tried to keep getting answers from doctors, from police, but everyone just kept saying that it was ruled an accident. Her death was an accident. So eventually Karita's parents had to give up. They couldn't do anything. They tried. They literally did. They went everywhere. So in the end, they went back to Australia and they accepted Joji's offer for him to pay for the funeral. And what Joji has done is absolutely despicable. The fact that he just blatantly lied to Karita's parents, the fact that he met up with them, that he's paid for this funeral, thinking that it might try and absolve him of some guilt. Well, remember all of this because uh, all of this does come back up. He does not get away with Karita's murder. No. 
and Joji just goes back to his routine. There is no remorse for Carita whatsoever. He's not worried if he murders again, doesn't really care. And his victim count just keeps getting higher and higher. He makes hundreds more videotapes of him assaulting women. And then we get to 1997, almost five years after the murder of Karita, and the same thing nearly happens again. Joji invites a young British hostess on a Dohan. He brought her back to his apartment, drugged her, sexually assaulted her, filmed the whole thing. She woke up and he let her leave very nice of him. However, the next day she was back at her club, her hostessing club, and she began to feel really sick. And she's so severely sick that she is rushed to the hospital. And she again, like Karita, had severe liver poisoning. But thankfully in this case, I don't know if she managed to get to the hospital in time. Like I don't know, but thankfully she survived. And she went straight to the police to report Joji Abara. But because she was foreign, she was stigmatized and the police were not interested. But let's be realistic. The police are not interested in any woman that is sexually assaulted. So Joji just goes back to normal assaulting women left, right, and center. However, a year later in 1998, Joji decided to vary up his sex crimes just a little bit. Joji, wearing a disguise, snuck into a women's restroom and started videotaping women in the toilet stalls. Now, thankfully, he was caught and arrested for doing this. However, he was just given a slap on the wrist and a $75 fine. That is it. So Joji went back to his sex crimes, assaulting women. And now we get to the year 2000. And this is when he meets another very significant victim in today's case, a woman called Lucy Blackman. And sadly for Lucy, her meeting with Joji Abara would end in absolute tragedy. So Lucy Blackman was a British woman who was currently 21 years old. She had grown up in the town of Seven Oaks, which is just outside of London. And she lived with her mother Jane and her younger siblings, Sophie and Rupert. Lucy also did have a close relationship with her dad, a man called Tim, but her parents had divorced when she was in her teenage years and now her dad lived on the Isle of Wight with a new family. And growing up, Lucy was just described as such a sweet and caring person. She was full of laughter and she always had a smile on her face. And she was also very particular. She was very particular about her things. She liked things in a specific kind of way. After school, Lucy found work as an air hostess for British Airways, which initially in the beginning she absolutely loved because she got to travel. However, a few months in, the novelty of traveling kind of wore off. She was just always jet lagged and she didn't really enjoy her job anymore. And she also wasn't earning a lot of money. So at the age of 21, Lucy decided that she didn't want to be an air hostess anymore. She wanted to change. She also wanted a job that was going to pay a lot more money. And this is when her close friend Louise told her that her own sister had gone over to Tokyo and she was a hostess for just a few months and she had earned a lot of money doing it. It was a lot of fun. It was easy work. So Lucy and her best friend Louise decided that they were going to go over to Tokyo, be a hostess for a few months, earn a fortune and then come back to the UK. So they both arrive in Tokyo and just like Karita, Lucy only planned to stay in Tokyo for a few months. So because they were only supposed to stay for a few months, Lucy and Louise didn't bother to get proper work visas. They only had tourist visas. So once they were in Tokyo, they found work as hostess.
hostesses in a club that would pay them cash in hand. So they settled in Tokyo, they found themselves an apartment, and they began working as hostesses. In the beginning, Lucy was really enjoying herself. She would email her younger sister Sophie all the time and tell her how much money she was making and the work was really easy. She couldn't believe that she was being paid so much money just to have conversations with people. Lucy even started dating someone in Tokyo who was a US Marine called Scott Fraser. And Lucy and Scott fell for each other straight away. It was like head over heels, whirlwind romance. Scott was actually stationed in Tokyo with the US Marines. That's why he was there. And Lucy was just living her best life. She was having so much fun. She was earning so much money. She had a new boyfriend. However, there was one part of the hostessing job that she was struggling with, and that was the dough hands. And Lucy was struggling to meet her quota of dough hands every single month. So she was being pressured by management to go on more dough hands to earn more money. However, one day in 2000, it was approximately seven to eight weeks after Lucy first got to Tokyo, Lucy had the unfortunate experience of meeting Joji Abara. And obviously we know that Joji likes Western speaking blonde women and that is essentially what Lucy was. So as soon as Joji saw her, he decided that she was going to be his next victim. Joji quickly invited Lucy on a Dohan and because Lucy was struggling to get Dohans, she immediately accepted. She was so excited. She was like, finally, I'm going on a Dohan. And on the 1st of July, 2000, Lucy left her apartment to go on this Dohan with Joji Abara. She told her friend Louise that she wouldn't be long, that she would be back because Lucy, Louise, and Lucy's boyfriend, Scott, they were all planning on going out later on that evening. And Lucy was like, I'm only going to be gone for a few hours. I'll be back in time to go out. So Lucy went on the Dohan. She went to Joji's apartment by the sea. The two had dinner together. Joji took some photos of Lucy by the seaside. The Dohan had gone really well. It went smoothly. And then at around 7 p.m., Lucy called Louise and told her that she was on her way home, that she would be back in about half an hour. But sadly, that would not be the case. Half an hour goes by and Lucy is still not home. She never returned home all evening. She didn't return home the next day. And this would soon spark one of the biggest investigations into a missing British person that Japan has ever seen. So now we get to the 3rd of July, 2000. This was only two days after Lucy went missing and her best friend Louise was going out of her mind. She had already gone to the police, but the police were not interested. As soon as they found out that Lucy was foreign and that she was working illegally as a hostess on a tourist visa, they were just like, oh, well, she's a grown woman. She can do what she wants. She's probably just ran off. And then out of nowhere, Louise receives a phone call from a mystery man. He spoke very good English, but he had a pretty thick Japanese accent. And he said on this phone call to Louise that Lucy has joined a religious cult. She is safe, but she's in this cult. Don't come looking for her. She's in Sheba. And that was it. This person just put the phone down. So Louise started to freak out. So Louise went to the British embassy and they promised to help. And they also informed Lucy parents of what was going on. And as soon as her parents found out what was going on, they also too completely freaked out. Lucy's dad, Tim, and her younger sister, Sophie, they jumped straight onto a plane and headed to Tokyo. But when they got there, they were also met with the same response from the police that Louise got. There's nothing that we can do. She's probably just ran off. I mean, 
There was this phone call that she's joined a cult. We have to take that seriously. Maybe she has joined a cult. But Tim, Lucy's dad, was like, "Uh uh-uh, no, my daughter would not just run off and randomly join a cult. So Tim was not about to go about this quietly. He wanted to make as much noise as possible because he thought the more people that knew about his daughter, the more likely it is that they will find her. So Tim started this huge campaign. He went to every single news outlet that he could. He was sticking missing posters on every lamppost that he could. He was trying to speak to politicians, police, people on the streets, everyone. Tim was trying to put so much pressure on the police to try and force them into finding his daughter because they just were not interested. And three weeks went by and Lucy was still nowhere to be found. However, there was a little bit of a stroke of luck because it was currently the G8 summit in Tokyo, which meant that the Prime Minister of the UK, Tony Blair, at the time was going out to Tokyo. So Tim lobbied as hard as he could to try and get Tony Blair's attention and Tony Blair agreed to meet with him. And after this meeting, Tony Blair then met with the Japanese Prime Minister and asked him if he could step up the search for Lucy Blackman, which the Prime Minister of Japan agreed to. So then the Prime Minister of Japan went to the police in Tokyo and said, uh, what are you doing? You need to find Lucy Blackman now. So now, all of a sudden, the police in Tokyo started to take this case seriously. 40 detectives were assigned to the case and the case completely, completely blew up in the media. And the British tabloids were writing quite a lot on the story as well. And let's just say the British tabloids, they don't help anyone ever. They were really running with the story of Lucy Blackman has run off with a sex religious cult. But sadly, the days rolled by, then the weeks rolled by, and the investigation was getting nowhere. The police were not having much luck because they were trying to talk to other hostesses that possibly knew Lucy Blackman, but none of the other hostesses really wanted to come forward. And I wonder why. It's like, what do you expect? The hostesses, they didn't trust the police. The police had never helped them in the past, so why are they going to come forward now? So this is when Lucy's dad, Tim, decided to take things into his own hands. The family did hire multiple private investigators, and with funding from none other than Richard Branson, uh uh-huh, Tim set up his own hotline for anyone to call anonymously for any information about Lucy Blackman. And calls started to flood in. There was so much information. Now I'm Unfortunately, when you set up something like this, you get a lot of false leads. Even the Japanese mafia phoned in on this hotline to try and take advantage of the situation. They told Tim that they had his daughter and that they were about to sell her into the sex trade. But if Tim gave them a load of money, he could save his daughter. And Tim fell for this. He handed over thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars to the Japanese mafia. But of course, they didn't have his daughter. So the mafia just ran off with his money. And then this next thing is is so confusing. But there was another call into the hotline. So this man that phoned up claimed that he was a producer in the Japanese pornography industry and that he knew another producer in the industry that he was feuding with. And he believed that this other pornography producer was holding Lucy captive. So Tim and a private investigator followed this lead. They were given an address by this mystery man on the phone to this other pornography producer. So they went over to this other producer 
producer's apartment and what they found in this apartment. It was not Lucy. And I've got to warn you now, you are not going to be prepared for what I'm about to say. So when they walked into the apartment, they found the pornography producer, but he was hanging from a wall with a rope around his neck. He was naked from the waist down and he also had his own feces stuffed in his mouth. And when they checked his pulse, the man had sadly passed away. And I'm just like, what? the hell. Immediately the police were called out and the police determined that the pornography producer had possibly died from autoerotic asphyxiation and that he had accidentally lost his life from trying to get more of a sexual thrill by cutting off his oxygen supply and his own feces in his mouth. Um, I, I don't know what happened there. Like I have no information. I cannot explain that to you. But what was even stranger about this whole thing with the pornography producer is that all over the apartment were photographs of Lucy Blackman. Plastered all over the walls were the missing posters. Like literally her posters were everywhere, all over the walls, which doesn't look good, does it? And I honestly, I'm baffled by all of this. It really is a head scratcher because I really don't know why Lucy Blackman's photo was all over the apartment because this had no link to Joe Giabara. This was another dead end. This was another red herring. And in the end, it is thought, only thought, not confirmed, that the pornography producer didn't accidentally lose his life. He was actually murdered by a rival gang member. And the rival gang wanted to frame him for Lucy Blackman's kidnapping. And I don't understand why they wanted to do that because obviously he never did kidnap Lucy. I don't really know where they were going with that. But none of that has anything to do with Joji Ibarra. And it is just so bizarre. And I have no explanation about all of that, but I had to include it because what the actual hell? But this is the kind of crazy thing that Lucy's dad, Tim, was being sucked into. Like Tim was investigating all of this himself. Tim walked into that apartment to find that man. So more and more weeks pass. And finally, a break was made in the case. Because this story about Lucy Blackman, it had been plastered all over the media now for weeks. It was all anyone could talk about. So other hostesses were learning about the story and they had started started to come forward to talk about their very similar experiences. They started to come out that they had had this date with this mystery man. This mystery man had a different name for all of the hostesses, that they had gone on these dohans with a man who owned an apartment by the sea, exactly the same as Lucy Blackman. They were drugged, possibly sexually assaulted. These hostesses had reported the crime to the police, but the police were not interested. But they started to call Tim's hotline because it was done anonymously. And Tim was working with these hostesses, working with the police, getting the statements, trying to put the story together himself. And they were able to produce an e-fit of the possible mystery man. And when this e-fit was put on the news, even more women started to come forward about their experiences with this exact same man. So the police were following all of these leads by all of these different women, which were about the same man. They had also, using Lucy's phone records, had managed to locate the apartment by the sea that all of these women were talking about. And once they had the rough idea of where the apartment was, because obviously they didn't have the exact location of the apartment, the police started taking these hostesses out to 
the approximate location of the apartment by the sea to see if any of these hostesses recognized the area, recognized the apartment that this mystery man took them to. And it worked. Many of these hostesses recognized the exact building that they went to that the apartment was in. The police pulled the records for every single resident in that building and they only found one person with a history of a sex crime. And that was a man called Joji Abara because remember he had been caught in a women's restroom videotaping women. That was his one sex crime on record. And I just want to point out now, it is now October 2000. Lucy went missing in July. It has taken three months to get to this place. Now, this is where the Japanese criminal justice system is very different from what we have in the UK and even what there is in the US, even though I don't really understand US criminal justice, but I try to. The Japanese way of doing things is to gather as much information as possible, like literally exhaust every single avenue before they arrest somebody. So then when they arrest that person, because they have all of this evidence, they can put pressure on that person to make a confession because trials are not very common in Japan. This was actually something that I found so bizarre. I always find it so fascinating learning about other countries' criminal justice systems. And I found out that in Japan, there are no jury trials. They don't have a jury. So cases are decided from a panel. And I think it's a panel of three judges. If I am wrong, please correct me. And criminal trials are so rare in Japan because 99% of people make a confession to their crimes and they plead guilty. So there's no need for a trial. So because trials are so rare, they only need to hold trials once a month. That's crazy. So anyway, they are trying to gather as much information and evidence on Joji Abara before they arrest him. However, they learn that Joji Abara is about to buy a boat and he is a flight risk. They cannot allow him to get on that boat and possibly go out in the middle of nowhere. You basically cannot track boats down, okay? The police also find it incredibly suspicious that he's randomly buying a boat. It's like, why are you buying a boat? Like, where are you planning on going? And then also to make things even more complicated, the details of possibly Joji Abara's arrest were leaked to the media and the media were about to publish all of this the next day. So the police, they had no option. They had to go and arrest Joji Abara before they actually wanted to, before they had enough evidence. Because otherwise, if the media had printed that they were going to arrest him, he would have just got on his boat and disappeared. So on the 12th of October, 2000, before Joji even had a chance to get on his boat. He was finally arrested at his apartment. And I just want to stress right now, the police, they actually don't know for certain that Joji Abara is even behind Lucy's disappearance. They just have all of these hostesses coming forward that he may have done something. These hostesses just recognize the apartment building. So right now they don't really have that much hard evidence. However, now they get to search his apartment and it finally comes to light just how evil Joji Abara really is. When the police searched Joji's apartment, they came across all of his videotapes and they came across 400 videotapes. That's at least 400 victims in this story. And you have to remember that Joji was assaulting women for a long time before he started videotaping himself. The true number of victims in this case is not known. It's honestly off the charts. It's ridiculous how many victims are in today's case. The police had to watch through all 400 videotapes, watching woman after woman being sexually assaulted. But they had to watch through 
through every single one. They had to try and identify these victims and they also had to try and see if Lucy Blackman was one of the women on the tapes. However, they never found the tape of Lucy Blackman. The police also found his journals and diaries that documented all of his sexual assaults and these sexual assaults dated back at least 30 years, which is crazy that he was sexually assaulting women for three decades, possibly longer. And they found a diary entry that talked about a woman called Carita Ridgeway. And that just blew this case wide open. And when they got to Carita's entry, next to her name said too much chloroform. And when the police looked into Carita Ridgeway, they discovered that she had died eight years prior from viral hepatitis, which was obviously not true, but with a stroke of luck, which was actually an error on the hospital's part. But the hospital had accidentally kept samples of Carita's liver. And when the police tested them, they tested positive for chloroform. But when it came to Lucy, they had no hard evidence. Obviously, he was responsible for a lot more than just Lucy, so the police could hold him on those charges. So the police kept digging and a thorough search of Joji's apartment went ahead. And they found some strands of blonde hair hair in his apartment. And when it was tested, these strands of hair belonged to Lucy Blackman, now confirming that she was in his apartment. So we now have a definitive link between Lucy and Joji. However, they still didn't know where she was. The police searched everywhere, the local area, the local beaches, there was caves by the beaches. They also searched Joji's other homes and Lucy was nowhere. Another four months go by and Lucy has still not been found. So now we are in February. February of 2001, which is seven months after Lucy first initially went missing. And the police decided to do another thorough search of the local beach that was by Joji's apartment because there were some caves there. There were definitely some places where someone could hide something and it not be found. And even though they had searched the beach and the caves before, this time they would actually find something. And the tragic fate of Lucy Blackman would finally be revealed. Because on the 9th of February 2001, an investigation team entered into one of the caves. And this cave, it was a mess. It was filled with trash. It was quite obvious that teenagers would hang out there. But also in the cave, very strangely, was a bathtub. And the police thought, hmm, that's strange. Maybe we should look under the bathtub. And it's just so infuriating because it's like, why didn't you look under the bathtub four months ago? Because the bathtub was there the whole time. I just want to stress that. But yeah, now all of a sudden they decide to look under the bathtub and buried beneath the sand, they found multiple plastic bags. And when they looked inside these plastic bags, they sadly found human remains. And these remains were so badly decomposed composed, they couldn't make out who this person was, what their gender was, what their age was, nothing. However, also buried in the sand under a large piece of concrete, they found a decomposed human head. And after doing dental analysis, it was confirmed that these remains were the remains of Lucy Blackman. So it was not good news. She was not found alive. And Lucy's family were absolutely crushed because even though seven months had gone by without them knowing what had happened to Lucy, 
They still held on to hope. They still thought that there was a chance that she was still alive, that she would just turn up. So following the discovery, Joji Abara is finally charged with the rape and the murder of Lucy Blackburn. And he was also charged with the manslaughter of Carita Ridgeway. He was also charged with eight counts of rape after eight women came forward to press charges. Now, like I just said, normally in 99% of cases, the police have so much evidence that the person that has committed the crime, they plead guilty and they give a full confession and there is no trial. However, that doesn't happen with Joji. Joji denies everything, you know, pleads not guilty, goes to trial. He is that 1%. And like I said, trials are so rare in Japan that they only have one trial day a month. So that means if a trial is 12 days long, that would take one year in Japan. And because this trial of Joji, it was so complicated. He had not confessed. The police didn't have concrete evidence to support all of their charges. He had pleaded not guilty. He was not saying a single word. This trial was going to be a very lengthy trial. And given the system in Japan, this trial dragged on for six years years, which is technically still only 72 days in court, which is not that long for a trial so big. But when you realize, oh my God, six years, six years. And I just feel so sorry for all of the victims involved in this with Lucy's family, for Carita's family, that they had to go through this for six years. And now we get to the point where we finally find out what happened to Lucy Blackman. The full details of how Joji disposed of Lucy's body were revealed. Sadly, we still do not know exactly what happened leading up to her murder. But on the 4th of July in the year 2000, three days after Lucy went on that dohan and three days after she went missing, Joji visited a hardware store where he purchased a variety of items, including a chainsaw, a handsaw, various knives, shovels, plastic bags, a tent and a cement mixer. Two days later, on the 6th of July, Joji was heard making a lot of suspicious, loud noises. His neighbors actually made a complaint to the police. The police came out to Joji's apartment. Joji answered the door. He was sweating profusely and his hands were covered in concrete. The police asked if they could come inside the apartment, look around. Joji said yes. So the police started to look around and then they asked if they could go into the bathroom and Joji Joji said no. Joji said, going into my bathroom would be like seeing me naked. It's interesting logic that you have there because it's not quite the same. So the police left because they didn't have a search warrant and there was actually nothing that they could do. And I think Joji realized that the police were probably going to go and get a search warrant because he was acting so suspiciously. So Joji needed to think very quickly on his feet. So Joji comes running out of his apartment after the police that have just left holding a frozen dog. I bet you thought you'd heard it all in this case, haven't you? Yeah, a frozen dog, his beloved dog. Remember Irene? Well, his dog did pass away of natural causes. Joji wasn't responsible for that. So after his dog passed away, Joji decided to freeze his dog, hoping that one day, given advancements in technology, etc., that he would one day be able to clone his dog. And all of this is true, by the way. This is not a made-up story that Joji just thought. Joji actually did freeze his dog, hoping that one day in the future that he would be able to clone his dog. So he ran out after the police, 
holding his frozen dog and said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I was acting so suspicious. I didn't let you in the bathroom because I was hiding my frozen dog in there. And unbelievably, the police believed him. It's like, why would you keep a frozen dog in a bathroom? But it's just so bizarre. And the police believed him and they didn't ask any more questions and they just left. But what the police didn't realize is that Lucy Blackman's body was in the bathroom. He was actually currently encasing her head in concrete in the bathroom. And if the police had just gone and got on a search warrant, they possibly would have found her. However, because the police messed up so badly on that day, the prosecution in the trial couldn't actually prove that Lucy Blackman's body was in the bathroom and that her head was currently being encased in concrete. They couldn't prove it. Even though they basically knew that that is what happened, they couldn't prove it. It was also discovered that one of the items that Joji had purchased from the hardware store was a tent. And this is actually pretty intelligent. It's very scary. I've never heard of this happening before. But Joji actually dismembered Lucy Blackman's body inside the tent. Therefore, none of Lucy's DNA, none of her blood, nothing left the tent. But honestly, that doesn't strike me as something someone would do if they were dismembering a body for the first time. Mm -hmm. So because Joji had disposed of this tent and the police, no one knew where this tent was. None of Lucy's DNA was in the apartment, none of her blood, nothing. So again, there was no evidence that he had murdered Lucy, that he had dismembered her body in his apartment. The only evidence they had was that her hair was in the apartment and Joji could just play that off as, well, we were on a Dohan. Of course she was there. I have nothing to do with her disappearance though. And what is even more frustrating is that because it took them so so long to find Lucy's body because it was seven months after she was murdered. Her body was so badly decomposed, they couldn't actually definitively say how she had died. And if the police had found Lucy's body four months prior when they had initially searched that cave, there may have been a chance that they could have discovered how she was murdered. It is so frustrating, this case. And because the trial was being dragged on for so long, the prosecution were getting absolutely nowhere. And this next thing... My God, it makes my blood boil. So because the prosecution was not getting anywhere with their case, especially on the case of Lucy Blackman, Joji made a legal maneuver, if that's what you want to call it. And I think this is pretty unique to the Japanese courts as well. But Joji offered Lucy Blackman's family money as sort of a compensation for their loss. And if the family accepts that money, then the defendant will often receive a reduced sentence. It's so frustrating that Joji is still rich. He may not be $45 million rich anymore, but he's still rich. He's still getting money from somewhere, probably all of his underworld connections and all stuff like that. It's so frustrating that people can literally just pay their way out of things. So Joji offered Lucy's family 100 million yen, which was approximately 840,000 US dollars. Now, Jane, Lucy's mom, immediately turned down this money. She was like, no, no, I don't want this money. I want you to go to prison. I don't want any money. However, Lucy's dad, Tim, he accepted the money. In exchange for accepting this money, Tim had to sign a statement basically denouncing the prosecution's case, saying that parts of the prosecution's case were not strong enough to convict Joji Abara 
of his daughter's murder. And unbelievably, Tim signed this statement and he accepted the money. And I truly cannot believe that he accepted the money. How can you accept money off the man that murdered your child? I would understand him taking the money if he was going to do something good with the money, maybe. It still feels uncomfortable to me. However, he bought himself a yacht. Yeah, let that sink in. And unsurprisingly, this caused a massive rift in Lucy's family. Her mom, Jane, was absolutely appalled that he would accept this money. And his other two children, Sophie and Rupert, also condemned him for what he had done. And later on, Carita's parents also accepted a compensation payment from Joji. However, this was different from Tim because Carita's parents only accepted the money after the trial. And finally, on the 24th of April, 2007, six and a half years after Joji's trial first began, he was found guilty on all of the rape charges. He was found guilty of the rape and the manslaughter of Carita Ridgway, but he was acquitted on all charges regarding Lucy Blackman. I can't believe it. I honestly can't believe it. Now, the prosecution were struggling to build a case against Joji when it came to Lucy's case. So maybe the prosecution didn't have the strongest case against Joji, or maybe the statement that Tim signed really swayed the court. Who knows? However, despite Joji Abara being found not guilty to all of the charges on Lucy Blackman, because he was found guilty on all of the other charges, he was still sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years. Now, Joji appealed immediately because he was like, this is unfair. But in 2008, the court not only upheld his current sentence and his current charges, but they even went further. They overturned some of the equipment in the Lucy Blackman case. Joji Abara was now found guilty of kidnapping, drugging, raping, and dismembering Lucy Blackman's body, which is so strange that he was charged and found guilty of all of that, but they still couldn't charge him with murder. So even though they didn't charge him with murder, at least there was finally some justice in the Lucy Blackman case. Thankfully, Joji is still behind bars to this very day. This man is evil. The prosecution actually called him the beast with a human face, and I agree. The fact that he got away with hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of rapes and he videotaped them and he just got away with it. And how did he get away with it? I mean, I'm definitely inclined to think that it had something to do with the fact that he was a multimillionaire. And I will say one thing at the end of this video, I think me personally, I think this, I think it's highly likely that Joji Abara is responsible for more murders than we know of. We know that he is definitely responsible for two, given how many victims he had. I think it's highly likely that he used too much chloroform on another victim. And given how meticulously he dismembered Lucy's body with the tent, that is not the work of someone's first murder. I mean, technically, Carita Ridgway was his first murder that we know of in this case, but he took her to hospital. He tried to save her life in a weird way. But when it came to Lucy, there was eight years between Carita and Lucy. You don't go from taking one victim to hospital to try and save them to the next victim buying a tent and so meticulously dismembering them and encasing their head in concrete. You don't go from that to the other. 
And it's just so sad that we don't know the identities to literally 99% of his victims. And I just hope that they're doing okay. But now we need to focus on the two known victims from today's case, Carita Ridgway and Lucy Blackman. Lucy Blackman was described as a sweet, caring and loving young woman. She loved life. She always had a smile on her face and she had so much more still to look forward to. She loved her job as an air hostess. She wanted to go on to bigger and better things in the future. She absolutely adored her family. She loved spending as much time with them as she could, but sadly her life was cut far too short. She was only 21 years old. Carita Ridgway was also described as a warm-hearted, generous and caring young woman. She was loved by her family. She excelled in her work as a model and she had big dreams of going on to be an actress one day. She had travelled to Tokyo with her sister who she adored with bright hopes for the future but sadly her life was taken far, far too soon. She was also only 21 years old and oh my god this case is so horrible i feel so sorry for the families involved including lucy's friend louise who had to deal with all of this as well she was there in tokyo when lucy went missing she had to return back to the uk and she really struggled with the aftermath of this lucy's sister samantha has also struggled with this and very sadly later on down the line she actually tried to take her own life lucy's other brother as well rupert fell into a deep depression so many people have been affected by this case and I truly truly from the bottom of my heart hope that they are doing okay that they have found some closure some peace and that brings us to the end of the episode on Joji Abara there are no updates on today's case Thank you so much everyone for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And if you enjoy the show, it would really mean a lot if you could leave a five-star review. In the meantime, if you have been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description of this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios and I'll see you all in my next one.